This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the podcast, we talk with Juno Award winning singer Leela Gilday in World of Weird Things with Greg Fish. How old are we anyway? Civilization. Is it way older than we think? Well, there's some evidence that says that could be a thing. And are you okay with Taco Tuesday? It is time for Are You Okay? Are you okay with security guards? Yeah, I used to yeah. be one um, back in the day. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Are yeah, you serious? Great. Yeah, no, security guard. Well, very briefly, I was a security guard. They're great. Um, so the overnight security guards, it's not a lot to do. So, like, you got to be friendly to those guys, you know? Yeah. Watching a parking lot. stories. Yeah. My, my, yep. my best friend who is now working in corrections used to be a security guard in Calgary and man some awesome stories of just crazy stuff you would never even imagine happening in some weird random place and you know very rarely any violence just very strange conversations with very interesting people yeah okay cool um well before we get into all of these stories uh, which I think is how you want to do this, Ryan. Let's um, let's paint a picture of a real scenario that can have some awful consequences. This is a story from 2017 about a man pretending to be a surgeon. This is CBS Denver. Carla Perez is one of 50 women who thought they were going to a certified plastic surgeon. Instead, these women say they were butchered by Carlos Hernandez Fernandez. Perez says she will never look the same again. And the most thing that I'm very angry is that I trusted him as a friend, as a doctor. This patient says she became sick after one of her surgeries, but was instructed by the suspect to not go to the hospital. He knew that uh, I was ill, and in one of the surgeries, uh, he knew that I could have lost my life, and he didn't care. Prosecutors say the suspect made hundreds of thousands of dollars off these women. Breaking bones, doing nose jobs, doing implants, liposections, facelifts, things with their eyes, scarring them for life, for money. Hernandez Fernandez says the situation snowballed after one person asked him for medical advice, knowing he had some kind of medical training from Mexico. I wish I, I went back in time and and do the right thing. Initially, all I wanted to do is just the benefit of them. But it did not, says prosecutors. <laughs> I wish you did the right thing, like went to school and got a doctorate <laughs> in medicine. Yeah, nice try there. <clears throat> okay. Um, what about people pretending to be surgeons like proper ones? Authorities in Pakistan... First of all, wait a second. Whoa. Full stop. At what point do you go, okay, now I realize I was a radio host for my whole life, but Ryan, I could really fix that nose for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's, uh, you know, at one time my doctor told me how he did, did something. So that means I know how to do it. So with that being said, I'm going to take this hammer and I'm going to take this scalpel. And when, when oh. you wake up, you're going to look great. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. was a terrible image. That one. You said Ballsy. hammer. Um, although in all fairness, uh, many people 
in today's world, you know, read about politics on on Facebook or about, I don't know, pandemics and also think they're scientists and, uh, you know, uh, political scientists, too. So Mm -hmm. in all fairness, I guess it takes all types. Authorities in Pakistan have charged a former security guard with impersonating a doctor at a hospital after he allegedly performed surgery on an elderly woman who later passed away. The 80-year-old victim, Shahima Begum, originally went to the Mayo Public Hospital to get treatment for boils on her back, according to police. That's when Muhammad Wahid Butt, a former security guard at the hospital, performed surgery on her and sent her home. Authorities say Butt was a security guard at the hospital until he was fired for trying to extort money from patients two years ago. Sounds like he was like a bouncer at the door, like holding a line, like 20 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. But he seemingly came back and decided his trend to, to try his hand at medicine. He performed surgery on the woman in an operating theater with a qualified technician president, a present, according to a hospital official who broke to the AFP the condition on uh, anonymity. Spoke to, pardon me. It was not clear what sort of operation was involved, but, but reportedly accepted payment for his work and for two follow-up visits to the victim's home. Begum's condition deteriorated after the surgery. Her family ultimately took her back to the hospital, at which point they discovered the fake doctor's deception. Uh, Mr. Butt is now in custody, which does beg the question, if he was the security guard, then he impersonated the doctor. Where was the security guard? (laughs) (laughs) Somebody was missing in this equation. Oh. The new security I, guard was impersonating the technician. I don't know. Like, what is that? How does that work? Huh. Wow. Well, I, and his last name was Butt. You know, there's that. No it's offense if your name's Butt. But yeah, it is no, no offense, but man, it's kind of excellent. I've always wondered why people, you know, would think, I'm so surprised that, um, you know, Dr. Smith wasn't a real dentist when he met me in the parking lot of Target and opened up his trunk and all of his tools were laid out on his spare tire. I was totally surprised that my root canal went wrong. There's that. But I, I like, guess I've always wondered when people travel to other countries to get work done. My, my parents being snowbirds a few years ago, they would go down to California and Palm Springs and all those places. And then they would jump across the border and, and some of them would get dental work done or you know, stuff like that. I was like, really? No offense to Mexico. I just figure, like, if you're in Canada of all places, I'm sure there's great dentists in Mexico, but there's people that travel to Mexico and they do those travel surgeries where you go down there and then mm-hmm. you get your hip replacement and you do your recovery in a room that overlooks the ocean in air conditioning and your your partner or whoever's taking care of you gets to go enjoy the sunshine and, and everything else. Actually, now that I say it like that, it does sound pretty awesome, doesn't it? Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, by the way, uh, I hate to break it to you. If you have taken on a job of a security guard, thank you for your work. You're not a doctor. Sorry to say. Are you okay? Are you okay with Taco Tuesday? Hell yeah. That might be the silliest are you okay ever, because I don't know anyone who is not okay with Taco Tuesday. It's, It's Taco Tuesday. It's been a while. I'm going to say it's been several years since I've had a taco. 
You should probably have one soon. Yeah, now mm. that you're eating meat again. Yeah. Oh, I haven't eaten beef yet. I guess I can get like a chicken taco, chicken. right? They do mm-hmm. those. Yeah. Fish taco. Yeah. Um, I probably won't go to the Taco Bell. That won't be the first yeah. choice. But yeah. I would avoid no. that. But yeah. think about it this way. If you're going to reintroduce beef into your body, there is no better way to do it than yeah. with tacos. Because you know the outcome. So you might as yeah. well. <laughs> well, I used to do a good taco and tequila night in downtown Toronto years ago. Uh, that never ended well, but we did it. So Yeah. yeah. Maybe, well, maybe a little margarita for you. Maybe you when up, you guys you know, come day drink, you know, we'll do some tacos and Taco tequila. Tuesday is one of those things that I don't even know who invented it or which company marketed it first, but it's been genius ever since. I don't care how cliche the marketing is. It's amazing. Sometimes the desire for tacos is just too great to ignore. Like when I lived in Sudbury, Ontario, and we used to drive all the way to Barrie after DJing in the bar until three o'clock in the morning so we could get tacos. We used to do that at Taco Bell. Then we would drive all the way home. Cheesy chili burrito. Not sure it's for real food. Damn, it tasted good. Sometimes you need to just do anything to get your tacos, including these two guys from Florida. Oh, thank you, Florida. Jose Ikari says he and his pilot friend were flying across Florida to grab some tacos on Tuesday when the engine of their small plane failed and they crash-landed in a remote area of the Florida Everglades. Here's more from Local 10 News. We looked at each other and we were like, what? We're alive. It's a Taco Tuesday tale. Two men are lucky to live to tell. Not the day for, to get tacos. Sky 10 shows 21-year-old Jose Ikari and his pilot friend walking around their downed plane, waiting to be rescued after they made an emergency landing in the Everglades. The men were miraculously unscathed. We were like at 2,000 feet and... We had an engine failure. Ikari snapped these photos on his phone. He tells me the men were on their way from Tamiami to Arcadia to grab some tacos. We knew we couldn't make it. Miami-Dade Fire Rescue responding just after 11 a.m., a crew member harnessing the men one by one as they're lifted into the rescue chopper. The pilot was taken back to Tamiami. Miami-Dade Fire Rescue's chopper landed here, where Jose was able to reunite with his mother. The two embracing and talking about the scary moment when he thought he wouldn't make it. People don't usually survive this kind of stuff, and uh, the rate we were descending, we were like, on a dive. In that dive, Akari says he thought of a late loved one. I was thinking about my grandpa, and he's the one that is, he's up there, and he will save me, and he's, he, he saved me today. Not a good day to get tacos, <laughs> he said. <laughs> I, but he said another day to get tacos, too. Like, I love that. My plane crashed on my way to get tacos on Taco Tuesday. That's good. Which means it's I can really take good. a plane tomorrow next week to get it. Also, how good were the tacos if he felt the need to, yo, we got to fly to another county to get these tacos. Mm-hmm. That's good tacos. Well, those gentlemen now hold the crown for the best Taco Tuesday story ever. This is the Shift Podcast. Junos were this weekend, and, uh, you know, the awards were given out. It's always kind of different when no one really gets together. But I guess you kind of miss out on a free trip 
if you were going to go to the the dinner gala or the awards, but you don't really miss out when you kind of stay home and you get to do it on Zoom or whatever. There's one particular award that uh, I found interesting in a lot of different ways. Um, I'm going to introduce you to Leela. Leela Gilday is um, in Yellowknife and was nominated for a Juno this year in the Indigenous Artist or Group of the Year category. And then this weekend comes along and uh, congratulations, uh, Leela. North Star Calling is the album. You're the winner. How do you feel? I feel wonderful. I feel humbled and I feel elated. It's a pretty exciting time. Um, Would you have come down? Would you have flown to the Junos? I mean, that's a trip for you. That's not just like, hey, by the way, I'm coming from Regina. Um, that's a trip for you. Would you come down, do you think, to the dinner if, if the times were different? Yeah, I've been to the Junos several right. times. And as a touring musician, you generally, and it's not a free trip, actually. You have to cover your own <laughs> <Damn> costs. <laughs> but it is uh, it is important to be there and to, you know, network with all our fantastic colleagues. And, and it's also so celebratory, you know, I... I did kind of miss that, but I, you were absolutely right. I got to celebrate with my family around a fire and that was awesome. Oh, that's so cool. How are things up in Yellowknife these days with all things pandemic? You guys doing all right up there? Yeah, we're doing very well. We've had very strict um, restrictions. So from the, from March, 2020, um, we've been, our borders have been closed and if you come in or out as residents, you have to isolate for 14 days. And um, so it's been very strict in that way because we have very little health infrastructure. Like we only have, I think it's three, maybe it's eight beds for the entire wow. territory that would have capability of. And because there's no hospitals in most of the communities in, in the NWT um, just an outbreak would be very dangerous for and our, our elderly population. Yeah. And like, it's really just the remoteness of, of our, our community. So that's why we got access to the vaccine first. Yeah. Well, it makes total and, sense. Uh, I mean, why wouldn't you? Yeah. It's not, yeah. I mean, you got old grandpa Bob there who, if he gets sick, right? Like you can't, it's going to be, it's not going to be fun for anybody. Yeah. So, and, and there have been a couple little outbreaks, but they've been, uh, confined very quickly or contained, I, I guess, very quickly. And then um, things are really good. So we, we are up to like 25 people outdoors can oh, nice. gather with appropriate, appropriate social distance. And um, I think you can have five people over to your oh, house. Wow, that's way better than what we have here. Um, yeah. But So that makes for a good weekend to celebrate the Junos. Tell us a little bit about music for you, um, Leela. Um, you've been doing this for a while. You, it seems to be sort of deeply woven into your, the fibers of your DNA, the music. Um, how important is it for you to sort of live that life? I, I don't know. I've never been to Yellowknife, so I don't know what careers look like. It seems like a hell of a place to try to be a touring artist from, but. Yeah, no, that's definitely a choice that I made. Um, you know, when I, so I was born and raised in Yellowknife and then, um, after I finished university, like I went to U of A and then I decided to move to Toronto um, because you really can't like start a career uh, as a touring artist up in Yellowknife. Um, there's only, we have a very low population there. It's, travel is very costly. 
So I spent five years in Toronto and five years in Vancouver, and then I was finally able to move home in 2009. Um, but it, it really was a decision of the heart, not a decision, not a good business decision, uh, because I do spend, or I used to pre-pandemic spend, you know, half to three quarters of my time traveling. Right. So it's a, it's a bit of a sacrifice, but I, I love music and I, I feel that what I have to say and what I, uh, the stories I have to tell and the and the ways that I tell them are important for people to well that hear. that's the one thing that I've I got a couple of friends who uh, revolve in the um, electronic dance world and the um, in the hip hop world of indigenous music and and um, it's it's there's always a little bit different perspective inside why. Um, music is made. Music is such a deep rooted part of your culture anyway, your family culture, you know, music and dancing. And so um, I've always found that in speaking to my friends, and this is what I'm curious uh, about you, is that do you make it as an expression of, you know, you, your family, your your heart, or is do you make it to preserve? Because I know an awful lot of people also feel a responsibility to preserve pieces of the culture and make sure that they get because music's like a time capsule, right? Like you get to save it forever. Uh, where does that all land for you? That's a, that's a really interesting question for me. It's I'm definitely telling the stories from my perspective. Um, and my musical journey is very much intertwined with like my journey as a human. Um, and so culture is very important to me and cultural reclamation. So the next record that I'm doing is going to be all in my own language, oh, cool. but that's not necessarily to preserve the language, maybe to um, maybe to be like a language proponent and maybe have other kids learn the language through that way. But um, t- to me, it's really about speaking from the heart and, and, and telling the stories that compel me as well. Um, definitely my music has a, you know, an empowerment component to it. And that's not an accident. Um, you know, there's, there's one of my favorite moments um, in my career was probably about 10 year, 10 or 12 years ago, I was performing on a stage and it was at APTN used to put on a thing called Aboriginal day live. It's now called indigenous day live as everything's being sort of retitled. Um, and I was playing with my band and in front of the stage, lined up there was about six or seven little girls all little Dene girls and they were all just like this like put their chin on the front of the stage and looked up at me just in adoration and I was it blew my mind because that was the moment I realized what I'm doing really matters because these girls can see themselves accomplishing whatever they want if I'm standing there as living proof you know I have a writing piece uh, in my writing and um, I, I write about words and language, radio guy. What, what else would you do? Um, and it's, it says that specifically. It says the real gift is given is not the words that I speak to you. It's you receiving my words. Um, and I often will say that you think that um, that the gift is the radio or the content or whatever. No, the actual gift that's given here thousands of times over, it, you know, I mean, there's one gift of the words, but then receiving all of it is thousands and thousands of times over. That's the real gift that's given. Do you find that that, that in your music is similar? Absolutely. I, I mean, if I, it makes it worth it to me, you know, it makes all of the sacrifice and all of the hard work worth it to me that 
my stories, my words are received and, and they impact people in some way, you know, and what that way is, there's myriad mm-hmm. ways. So, um, but I, but I, there, yeah, there have been moments in my life where I've really, where fans or friends of my music have come up and told me your music changed my life in this mm-hmm. way. And I'm so grateful for those people because otherwise I really, what's the point, yeah. right? <laughs> if I'm just making music to navel gaze, like that's not. Yeah. Anyway. Well, it's true though, right? I mean, you, sometimes you have to, you have to look in the mirror and go, you know, am I driven to do this or am I selfish in doing this? Or is, is it something that in my life that I'm just sort of meant to do? Uh, and sometimes those questions I think get answered when you say, yeah, there's something there and I don't need to or care to explain it. I'm just going to sort of live into it. Um, accepting some of those challenges from being so far away. Yeah. And I, uh, you know, as a musician, we're continually asked to, to examine ourselves. We're very, as a songwriter, we're very introspective. And for me, a, a big part of it is that I'm like a person of faith. Like I believe the creator has given me a gift and it's uh, on me to right. share it. And if I don't, it's like, I'm not fulfilling my, you know, my, my purpose on this yeah. earth. So I feel that's a part of it. Yeah, as I get well. that too. I, I mean, there's an integrity thing for me where if I don't do this and sort of surrender myself to the notion that there is something worth sharing or something worth receiving, then I'm just not really in, in the integrity uh, that you're sort of put here to do. So I feel like I get that. That's beautiful. I like that. So tell me about your music. If you had to pick a style for people to uh, give it a go, because it is on Spotify. Everyone could go give it a listen. Um, so yeah. uh, what, what's Leela's music and what's the album North Star Calling? What does it sound like? And 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 what's, what's the point of it for you? My music is passionate and vulnerable at the same time. Um, it, I, when I'm writing my music, I take a lot of inspiration from traditional Dene influences. So there's a lot of um, Dene drum beats in there um, and melodies that I use in for choruses, my, my songs or inspiration for songs. Um, there's a lot of, uh, stories of the North and stories of um, love and loss and happy stories as well. So it's, you know, when I was a little girl, my first, and I know you're going to ask me this question, my first three cassette tapes, because that's how old I am, (laughs) were Stevie Wonder, Aretha Franklin and Whitney Houston. And I have taken a lot of inspiration from like soul singers and then traditional Dene drummer singers, equally as passionate, and it kind of kind of fused in there together. That's cool. So that's I mean, my music is not soul R and B music; it's more folk yeah. roots uh, music with like a soul soulful vibe. Yeah, I like it. that. It's so great. So I did warn you on this one. Um, you have to pick for me your favorite song on North Star Calling, which is probably more difficult than picking um, one of the most influential of those artists' uh, songs that um, that got you. Can you can you give me those? Because I think it helps us with some perspective on what we can look forward to, plus where you come from musically. Yeah, I. 
this is a difficult it's question. It's impossible, actually. Um, it's unfair and it's impossible. <laughs> no, it's okay. Because um, you know, I, I also know that probably most of your listeners are not familiar with my music. So I'm like, if this is their opening, if this is their first foray mm. uh, into my music, probably um, the second single from the record, which is titled Keta Natseju. And it means we are healing together. Um, it's... Uh, a track that it starts out, out with Dena drummers and it's a track that means um, that really looks at the healing our relationships within our own indigenous families. So as you probably know, um, the, the colonial policy of the residential school system that was put in place by the Canadian government through the Indian act and then enacted by the church um, was to eradicate Native people uh, or kill the Indian and the child, and I'm using air quotes mm-hmm. here, um, it really fractured our family structures because it took kids out of their homes. And, um, you know, the whole thing was to make, was to take away language, identity, culture, and ties to yeah. community. That was the whole structural purpose so that those kids who went to residential school grew up not not learning how to parent. So they don't, they didn't know how to parent. And so, because they weren't raised by in a healthy traditional family that disrupted that structure. So a lot of our family relationships, you know, are, are struggling because of that Mm -hmm. policy. Um, And so this song is looks at healing our relationships between our family members. Uh, To acknowledge us, uh, we had a guy named Bruce Allen on and he spoke of his family's history in and around that, just to uh, loop you in on it. And I invite everybody, if you want to learn more about that, um, I do ask Bruce, you know, like, what what, what do you need from me in all of this? And, uh, he, you know, he had shared to just go learn and, and go to the universities and read what it was all about. Um, but he shared a story about his cousin's family and his family is fractured because of behavior that happened in uh, some of the, you know, binge drinking of family members that, that were uh, so grossly affected by their time in the schools, right? And then, and then cause and effect and effect and effect goes the snowball. And now you've got family members who aren't talking because of accidents and so on. So we heard some of that this week. And that's, to me, that's the most profound part of the conversation is to say, like, you have to understand there's reasons why some of these stereotypes exist. And we need to look at history on the the, the reasons why and how that, that ball got kicked down the hill so long ago. And it's interesting for you to say that about family structure. Absolutely. I mean, it's so pervasive and it's not a historical condition. These are these, this, the colonial structure is still in place and the Indian act is still in place. These are systemic things that we're still in. We're not in a post-colonial society. We are still dealing with these things every single day. So it's not just the historical piece. It's coming at us like right now. So it's like, it's very interesting to see, you know, um, non-Indigenous people, particularly waking up because of these 215 children that didn't make it home from residential school and then mm. were pitted. But there are thousands of those children. And what about the survivors who did yep. come home bearing the scars of that, you know, of that war and and walking around like yep. ghosts, you know, in their own communities? It's yeah. really... And not wanting to... And I would go as far as to say, and this is only assumption on my part, I would imagine that there's an awful lot of young people that grew up not wanting to embrace uh, the history of their own culture, plus not want to embrace 
sort of the colonial notion and being lost in a, a sort of a purgatory about where do I belong? Because there is no family. In some cases, the fractured family history is has been so broken. And at the same time, um, you don't really belong in this new world anyway because they kick the crap out of you. So, um, you know, I mean, there's got to be an awful, like you said, that kind of ghosts in, you know, walking around. That's mind-blowing and touching um, that you said that. Um, well, uh, so how do you say the song again? It's Kiante Natsei Ju? Did I do okay? Or that was bad. That was bad. I always try. Kiante. Not Kiante, like the wine. I didn't mean it that way. No, no, it's Kenta. So it's an implied end. Natsei, which means strong. Kenta? Kenta. Yeah, You can actually just pronounce it K-A-Y, Kenta. Oh, but it's an implied end, so it's Kenta. Okay, Kenta, not say Jew. See, I've always rather get it wrong and try than, than not. I love, uh, <laughs> I love that's that. That's awesome. Um, yeah, so it means we are healing together, or we're, we're becoming strong. More together. timely than probably you ever anticipated, that's for sure. Um, at the same time, particularly timeless. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations on your Juno. Masicho, thank you so much. Uh, Leela Gilday, North Star Calling Indigenous or Group of the Year uh, at the Junos. It's great. It's nice. so nice to meet you. Uh, I look forward to bringing you on again if we can. I'm just curious about Yellowknife. Like, how do you live up there in the cold all the time? Like, I have a million questions for you. It's awesome. <laughs> and yes, that'd be great to talk again. And you're welcome to come up anytime after pandemic. In the summer. <laughs> yes. In the <laughs> it's summer. not the winter. In the midnight sun. <laughs> it's the Shift Podcast. Welcome, Welcome to the world of weird things with Greg Fish. If you believe in uh, anything cosmic or kismet or anything like that, you will um, be right now waiting for evidence from Greg Fish that on his 10th birthday, the number one box office movie was probably something strange. What do you got, Greg Fish? Well, the question with me is which country? Ah, fair. Well, I'll tell you, why don't you give us Ukraine and, and America, I guess, because that's which the two you'd be talking about? Can't give you Ukraine. I did not have enough time to figure that out. But I can All tell right. you that in the U.S., it was something called terminal velocity. What does that say about your, uh, what's your future? Um, uh, hopefully I'm not nice hitting something ya. with terminal velocity. <laughs> <laughs> nice knowing you. Um, and also, uh, was there movies when in Ukraine when you live in a city that doesn't have no name because you make truck parts that happen to fly fast as rockets? Okay, well, and umbrellas. Let's not forget the umbrellas. But yes, there are movies, and you actually are allowed to watch them. So Really? Yeah, I mean, this was towards the end of the Soviet Union when things were really opening up. So they're actually, uh, yeah, I actually ended up seeing a lot of uh, American movies as well. I'm guessing Hunt for Red October was not one of them. <laughs> Ooh, no? Yeah, that one I don't remember being very popular for some bizarre reason. <laughs> uh, Greg Fish joins us. Worldofweirdthings.com is his blog. A podcast is there and more. Uh, to talk about, uh, well, frankly, the weird things, and hopefully not too much about terminal velocity. So, Fishy, uh, where are we going on this segment tonight? Today, we're going into the past. So, since we already mentioned Ukraine, I'm going to kind of stick with the theme because it's relevant. 
my first in my first history classes, I was told that the country in which I lived had very fertile land and it was very close to certain geopolitical points of interest. And therefore, it was settled since time immemorial by a number of different farmers and hunters and so on and so forth. And it kind of went that way for a couple thousand years. Exciting stuff, right? Totally. Now, yeah. Now, what my history teacher failed to mention and may not have known is that in southern Ukraine, archaeologists found something known as the Vinka symbols. And those are actually considered the earliest known form of writing, predating Sumerian cuneiforms by as much as 3,000 years. Now, that's something that you should lead with, probably. And then you have also networks of trade routes used by Neolithic tribes that spanned from uh, the Middle East to northern England and and all the way up to Scotland uh, for routine trade and travel and building religious monuments and trading all sorts of stuff. So what that kind of leads us to is when we start looking at history, a lot of times we're taught that, okay, well, history starts with recorded history, which is 5,000 years ago, which is in Samaria or in ancient Egypt. That's where civilization begins. And it just kind of sprung that way, and we're going with it. But if we actually look at the history of, of what we found so far, we see that civilizations are actually thousands and thousands and thousands of years older. And they're absolutely lost civilizations and lost societies that we don't know about and we actually may never really know about because they've kind of just been lost to history. So that opens the door to some very exciting questions about where did civilization actually begin? How old have we had something that would resemble cities? How old have we had something that resembles writing? Uh, so there's a lot of very interesting things to explore that we haven't really done because the way that we set up the educational system is that we we throw some some simplifications at students first and then we just say well somebody else will eventually correct it when we get around to it and a lot of times we just don't get around to it and that starts opening the room for people to question well you know how did all we all of a sudden emerge with writing how did all these things happen and then all of a sudden we have stories about aliens coming down to earth and zapping us with DNA rays and giving us writing in the pyramids. So in that, you said civilization. So that, as the word guy, go, you know what? I don't think I've actually ever read the definition of civilization. So I'm going to bring that to the table here um, and lend a little bit of support to all the things you're talking about. Civilization, the stage of human social and cultural development and organization that is considered most advanced. So something really organized is really what it is. And a group of people, particular area, uh, organized things. Now, ironically, when you search civilization, the very first thing that comes up is a pyramid. So this is, uh, this is curious. So we're, are we talking uh, pre pyramids or are we talking? Oh, yeah. Um, way pre pyramids. Pyramids so before the aliens came is really what I'm way saying. Way before the aliens came. Yeah, right. we're talking thousands and thousands of years before the pyramids. The first thing that should really come up to talk about civilization are stone circles and stone monuments arranged in circles that date at least 9,500 years ago 
probably as much as 10,000 years ago. Those should be the first things that really come up when we talk about those. So we talk about Stonehenge a lot and how, oh, the Stonehenge is really cool and how do they get all these megaliths there? But Stonehenge is actually one of many different stone circle structures and temple complexes that date to at least 6,000 years. And not only that, it wasn't the most impressive one either. It seems to have been a kind of ancient necropolis of sorts. This is where you, uh, this is, it was kind of like this, this funerary statue. And they were other very large hinges that were built out of wood that were kind of more for festivals and things of that nature. So, and, and, we still talk about, oh, well, the mystery of Stonehenge, but we've actually been working very diligently on solving those particular mysteries and finding out that these things that we have really kind of obsessed over and, you know, we have those History Channel specials at 2 a.m. telling us that the aliens must have built it. Well, they're not even that exciting, and we actually have a lot of other really cool stuff that we don't talk about at all, or if we do, we don't really pay enough attention to it. Well, one of the cool things about Stonehenge that's mis often misunderstood is that there are many different eras to Stonehenge. There's like Stonehenge 1, Stonehenge 2, which is like the old one, and then Stonehenge 2, there's a uh, like another area that's Stonehenge 3, like Stonehenge 4, well, three, there's 3, 3, 3, 4, 3, 5, and these are off by hundreds of years in their dating that they've done on this stuff. So, you know, it's not like this all of a sudden, you know, zap there's something amazing in history these things have been added on to so is that where we're headed that it's older than that or is that this one has just been changed manipulated over time that it gets better well kind of a little bit of both one of the things to keep in mind is a lot of these ancient monuments and these things that we kind of are are again really have in our imagination they've sprung overnight they've actually been worked on for hundreds of years and if you start looking around you'll see different prototypes where these cultures have essentially experimented with trying to build bigger and bigger and more complicated. And then we find that culmination and we kind of ignore the rest or we don't pay attention to the rest and say, wow, how'd they build that? Well, you know, here's a thousand years of practice buried right next to it. And not only that, we have evidence that this particular monument took, you know, 500 years to fully complete or 200 years to fully complete. And there were like five renovations. So, you know, when we, when we start talking about, uh, the first temples, you know, we're, we're talking about something like the uh, Gobekli Tepe in uh, Turkey, which is almost 10,000 years old, the first known temple complex, and now was probably built over hundreds of years. And that's why uh, some archaeologists say, well, it's probably maybe closer to 10,000 years old, because we think it may have taken about 500 years to get to where it is. So again, all of these things might seem like, you know, why why are we obsessing about exactly how old things are and exactly how where these things came from? But it really does matter to give people a really good idea of, of the scale and how long it took to develop civilization. And we it really gives us the the ability to appreciate how much effort our ancestors went through to build, you know, the blueprint for societies and, and how many tens of thousands of years before that uh, they spent creating art and proto-languages and proto-scripts. Um, and when you start looking at human history that way, a lot, of these, uh, a lot of these weird mysteries that people have come up with all of a sudden and, and that you know capture people's imagination um, in the worst ways possible because they're not true, you can see how, how they no longer make sense. For example, 
things like Atlantis and different lost civilizations along continents uh, were very prevalent because people didn't understand or didn't know about um, tectonic plates and tectonic mm. motion. So to explain why the continents all of a sudden matched up, they basically just invented continents. And when they invented continents, they said, well, they must have sunk. People started building this folklore around it. Well, you know, maybe there were these ancient civilizations on them and they were super advanced. And if we dive um, in the in the right parts of the Atlantic or the Pacific, we'll come out with like an ancient warp drive and mummified aliens and, and whatnot. And that didn't happen. That doesn't happen. But the actual history itself is actually even more interesting because you look, you start looking back at it, and you know, and you're and you're looking at people all over the world, thousands of years ago, still building trade routes and traveling the world and exploring and leaving all sorts of cool artifacts and building all sorts of cool, mysterious um, monuments to where they've been and what they've done, and trying to record their history, and sometimes just trolling because. Um, one of my favorite uh, little stories like that about archaeology is that someone um, in Nordic caves uh, found these mysterious runes on the wall, and um, they spent a very long time trying to figure out what those runes were, and maybe they proved something incredible. And then when they finally translated them, the rules, the runes said something along the lines of, wow, this is really high, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So uh, there, so there, there's all sorts of really fun stuff in in the ancient past that we aren't really talking about, and I think we we really should and should start paying attention to it. Well, so you've got some of these uh, musical instruments, figurines, all these different things that have been found, and you know we've had archaeologists on the shift before. Um, we had the the oldest cave that has been found with evidence of human life inside it. And those kinds of things specifically. Um, but painting, paint is an amazing story in itself. If you just follow the history of paint, that goes back forever ago and why, how it was made. So how does that all plug into to your, your story here? Well, there is evidence of a little paint workshop in South Africa about 100,000 years ago. So there seems to be evidence that we have been a creative, our specific species, Homo sapiens, was creative since basically we've emerged because it's thought that, you know, our, our species really emerged about 130, 150,000 years ago. So within 30 to 50,000 years at least, we're painting at a scale enough to where we actually have to start making paints in bulk. Hmm. So that, what about that, the pictures? that automatically tells us. I'm sorry. Yeah, so go ahead. I said I was. I was thought you were done with the thought. So what, what were you saying about the paint? I was just going to ask about pictures. That's going to be my next question. But finish your thought about paint, please. Oh no. The 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 thought is that that really gives us that insight that we've we we're kind of just like wired for creativity as as a species because it that's that's what we're doing. Where the minute that we have some downtime between hunting and gathering and finding a right cave, we're painting. We're trying to do something. Okay. Artwork. Artwork in caves. Does that all count in this too for the dating? The problem with artwork in caves is that they're very hard to date and it doesn't really, part of the problem is what what is it that you're trying to establish? Because when you're, when you start asking about what is, you know, it does, does art play 
uh, does art play a role in civilization? Yes, absolutely. But how much of the rest of the civilization do we have going on in caves? We don't know. We don't have enough artifacts for that. Right. And there's no, um, no one left us an email either, which would have been How nice. inconsiderate of them. Well, we often have a lot of these dates mixed up too. I've learned this, that the, you know, things like Easter Island, when we look at Stonehenge and how old that is, and you look at uh, pyramids and all of those things, but then you look at Easter Island, um, there is a vast disparity on the timelines and eras of that. We often misunderstand that, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a there's a lot of overlap um, in in what we think of as very gradated history. Uh, different areas, different civilizations, different societies um, did different things, advanced at different rates, uh, considered different things important, uh, and that's another thing that we kind of need to learn to appreciate and and understand that uh, you know different societies also have different goals. Mm. Oh, shocker. There's an agenda at play. So speaking of agendas, uh, time and calendars. I mean, we base our calendar off of really the Christian faith. Uh, that's what the calendar of the world is based on. Really depends on what lens you want to take. You, there's We could pick any calendar and, and just decide from there. Well, the well, Jews use a completely different calendar that's supposedly from the very start of the world, and it's uh, over 5,000 years old. It's com coming up on 6,000 years now. Muslims use a completely different calendar that is supposed to date to the age of the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, you can really set an arbitrary date for the calendar anyhow you want. And in fact, there are some scholars out there that say, well, what we should do is we should date our history and our, and our modern era based on the age of the first temples. So technically, we should be living in the year 12, uh, 12,021. Wow. I would get that so wrong. Remember when you had to write the date down? We don't write the date down anymore. But you used to have to write the date down all the time? Well, I mean, Even that's why we have computers, right? <laughs> this is, yeah. this is where automation helps us. We don't even know the date. I was at the bank today, and I had to do a, a sheet because I was closing an account, and the bank person was like, you know, oh, can you just sign a date this, please? And I'm like, I have no idea what day it is. Is it? It's June something, right? Like, I, we've lost track of all of it. Oh, my goodness. <sighs> Such I is think life. it's that year of quarantine really messing with our perception of time, too. It is, and I'm curious how we're going to look back on this season of our lives and wonder about the fog and where it all went to. So great. Um, thank you very much. It's Greg Fish, worldofweirdthings.com. Uh, check him out on the Twitter and check out the podcast and all the information on the articles too. The link is right there at the front. You can see this story and dig into the details that you want to dig into. I will caution you, you will start to Google after you read this one. That's for sure. Um, there was a great guest we had, Michael Chazen. He was, he's a founding director of the Archaeology Center at University of Toronto. And they, he was the guy that found that cave. If you want to go back and uh, look through our podcasts at CuriousCast.ca, it's TheShift.ca, do that or your favorite podcast platforms and give it a Google because if you like this conversation with Greg Fish, you're going to like that one with Michael as well. Fishy, thanks, buddy. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.